Let's just pray before we open God's word. <clears throat> Father, we're thankful that we can praise you this morning, that we can praise you especially as we have done for your word, how it speaks truth to us. That we can praise you that we have a risen Saviour and Lord. And Lord, we ask that we would keep that in our minds, the power of your word and the power of the resurrected Saviour that we have as we look at his command to us this morning. May your spirit guide us into truth. And it's in his name we ask you. Amen. I don't know how good some of your memories are, especially those of you who are regular. Um, but on the 1st of December 2019, we started an epic quest. Does anyone have any idea what we started? It's bigger and longer than the Lord of the Rings and the Fellowship of the, all the Two Towers. Oh, there we go, yes, thanks, Judah. Bigger than all that and the prequels and the sequels. We started preaching through the Gospel of Matthew in 2019. Uh, we started with the Christmas story in December 2019. We've finished with the Easter story just these last couple of weeks. And this morning we are finishing Matthew, not finishing the Bible. We've got another book to go on to, which is really exciting. I'm very excited about it. I think it's been a wonderful blessing to have dug so deeply into one book of the Bible over these last couple of years. It's been really special. Um, I hope you've appreciated a, a deeper knowledge of Matthew and also the way that we approach Scripture in general. Uh, you can have a brownie point if you remember the first sermon and who preached it. I'm going to try and be really not offended right now. <laughs> Thank you, Darren. Thank you, someone, for remembering. I get the privilege of bookending uh, this series of Matthew unintentionally in some ways, but it's a great privilege to have started and to finish uh, the Gospel of Matthew. It's a real blessing. And having that uh, honour has just made this uh, all the more uh, wonderful to be able to share with you this morning. So our last section in the Gospel of Matthew is what is known as the Great Commission, the Great Command from Jesus. This command from Jesus for his followers and disciples to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptising them and teaching them to observe all the things that Jesus had taught. Those, those, these are words that are very familiar to us. If we are followers of Jesus, these are familiar words. We may have even memorized them. We may have even sought to really imprint them on our hearts because this is something we want to obey. We may well say we exist because of Jesus' command to do this. Some churches, and more brownie points if you want to, have vision statements that come out of this. No one's going to offer the vision statement that might spring to their mind about that echoes this call. So we exist to bring glory to God and joy to the city by planting churches that make disciples who live out their new identity through community on mission. I think we need to revisit that at some stage. But it's familiar. This command of Jesus is familiar to us. It's something that takes on great meaning for those who follow and trust in Jesus, that they want others to follow and trust in Jesus. Those who have been made disciples want to make disciples. 
But maybe there's a few issues as we hear this command, maybe just refreshing ourselves this morning, maybe for the first time as we hear this. Maybe we're fearful. Maybe we're not sure that we could accomplish what Jesus commands. Maybe we're apathetic. Maybe we don't don't actually care about what Jesus has commanded. Uh, Maybe we're exhausted from trying to do what Jesus has commanded, or maybe we're just confused about what it really means. So as we just unpack these few short familiar verses this morning, I want us just to be reminded of, of who goes, who did Jesus give this instruction to, why do we go? Well, that's because Jesus' authority commands us to. How can we go? Well, it's because he goes with us. And who we go to? Who do we go to? Because Jesus has come for all people. So firstly, I just want to think about who did Jesus give this command to? Who is to go and make disciples of all nations. It might seem redundant, but I think it's worth opening up our scriptures and following along the few verses that we've had read this morning. Just to see who were the people that first received this and then what does that then mean for us if we're followers of Jesus now. So even in verse 16 that we've had, Matthew 8, 28, verse 16, it starts with a bit of a somber note in 16. Because Matthew gives the detail of 11 disciples going to meet Jesus. Not 12, but 11. The 12 that had followed Jesus through all of his earthly life and ministry, uh, those last two or three years, witnessed all his miracles, even performed miracles themselves in his power and authority, hearing his teaching, And then watching him be betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, and now risen. They were no longer 12, they were 11. The detail seems unnecessary in some ways, but Matthew is giving us this detail, I think, just to to point out that Jesus' commission comes in the context where there's, there's things we don't comprehend and understand. There's great loss and grief, but God's plan to reach all nations is never, ever um, diminished or hindered, no matter what happens, even the most tragic of circumstances. It's just a short note, but I think it's just worth thinking about. And these 11 disciples, think about them a bit more, because verse 17 goes on to say that they have some mixed reactions to him. They come to him and obey that he's asked them to come and meet him in Galilee. And when they saw him, verse 17 says, some worshipped, but some doubted. They were there out of obedience in a certain sense. This obedience is still mixed with questions, with, with doubts. I think even just at the start this morning, I want us to recognise that these disciples are very human, just like us. They have... Failures, they'd had failings, even the last weeks before this. Jesus here is instructing people that haven't just, aren't just currently doubting as he's saying this, but also people that have denied him, people that all of them had deserted him. But now here they are, listening to one of his final instructions to them. 
this again is just to remind us. This command for, from Jesus to go into the world and make disciples comes to people who are imperfect. It comes to human beings. It comes to those who are, are weak, those who have doubts, those who at times struggle with what they are meant to do. Jesus gives this command to his followers and they're equipped by him, not by their abilities. Just another maybe redundant note, but it's good to think about where this command from Jesus comes in the context of. Uh, Jesus is giving this command. Just want to say that, because if you're still dead in the tomb, no need to give this command. But this is a resurrected risen Jesus. There's no need for uh, the spread of the name of Jesus over all the earth. Is he still dead in the tomb? Some teachers can have disciples who carry on their teaching after their death, but dead teachers can't send disciples. Just making a very obvious point. So here we see that Jesus' disciples were imperfect, they were small in number, It doesn't change the fact that Jesus still gave them this command, just as I believe he now does to us. There's no doubt in my mind that this command still applies to us because Jesus at the end of this section says he'll be with us to the end of the age to see this command through. We're still here, I think it's still valid. So we're gonna take this as a command for us as well. So who is meant to go and make disciples? Disciples of Jesus are meant to go. And they go with his equipping, with his authority and his presence. So Jesus' disciples go. Why should we go? Why should we go and make disciples? Well, Jesus' authority commands it. Jesus' authority commands it. Now, hierarchy is everything. Uh, when you're evaluating whether you're going to do something that someone has asked you to do. You may not acknowledge that, but I just want to, it's true, okay? If someone random on the street asked you to sign up for some sort of uh, volunteer thing where you can go and clean up, and clean up Australia Day or something like that, someone random says, can you come and pick rubbish up with me on the side of the road? You go, oh, sorry, a bit busy that day. If that day you got a personal phone call from the Prime Minister of Australia, and said, I really need you to do this for me. Do you think, do you, think you could spare just a couple of hours? You would, your attitude would change. Regardless of your view on politics, if the Prime Minister was asking you to do something, you would take that quite, it's quite an honour to go pick up rubbish. See how the perception changes based on the hierarchy or our view of the hierarchy? We sometimes receive instructions from those higher up the food chain, if you put it that way, with a bit more seriousness and soberness, sometimes humility, than we would if we receive it from someone else. What about an instruction from Jesus, though, a command from Jesus? Because I think as believers, those who follow Jesus, those who know this command so well, we've often failed to grasp its seriousness, I know I have, or carry it out. Or maybe it's good to be reminded of what Jesus is claiming here. 
verse 18, it says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Jesus is claiming full power over all things, full omnipotence, full sovereignty, full control over everything. His authority is limitless. Everything has been given to him. Now this, again, for those of us who've tracked through Matthew for so long, doesn't come as a great shock because he's already made a similar claim back in uh, chapter 11 and verse 27. He's said, everything that's been given to me is given to me by the Father. I have authority from him. A quick survey of Matthew speaks of Jesus' authority in other areas and contexts. Uh, Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed that he taught as one having authority. In chapter 8, he has authority over creation where he calms the storm on the lake. Later in chapter 8, he has the authority to cast out demons. Chapter 9, he has the authority to forgive sins. Chapter 10, he has the authority to send out his disciples with authority. In chapter 13, he speaks of himself as having authority to judge the world. So Jesus claims all authority, but he's also given all authority. And we see it lived out in his ministry, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. The very thing he'd come to earth to do, he had accomplished. The kingdom he had come to earth to set up was now being fully inaugurated, fully set up. And Jesus had been fully victorious. Heaven and earth, if you think of it this way, because Jesus is saying he's got all authority in heaven and in earth. Heaven and earth are now fully, completely united in Jesus. Jesus is no longer limited by his physical mortal body. He now has a fully resurrected and glorified body, one that unites heaven and earth perfectly together. And this authority that Jesus has was, of course, foretold in in Daniel, chapter 7, about the Ancient of Days, God giving authority to this uh, Son of Man who would be have all authority over all kings. He'd be Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Keep a note of Daniel. We're going to that uh, in our next series. But this authority of Jesus, we have to see is, it's being fully realized here. He's claiming it fully. He has it fully. It has been given to him completely. So when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, we should take note of the next thing that he's going to say. Therefore, go. Go and make disciples. And we often balk and react against someone telling us to do something just because of their position. Just because, why do I have to do that? Because I said so. As children, we don't like hearing that. I'm still a child in some ways, but I can remember well, I didn't like hearing that. And more recently, I've caught myself saying it to older son, 
when he's asked, why do I have to do something that I've asked him to do? Uh, he, he might not need a logical explanation of why he needs to wear a certain kind of footwear in public or to the shops. He might just need to obey. That might just be what happens, needs to happen. But my reasoning and my claim to total authority is going to fall flat at some point because he's going to realise I don't have authority over other children to wear appropriate footwear in certain places. My authority has limits. Children figure that out quickly. So the answer that because I said so is not going to carry past a certain age. One day, my child, our kids will figure that out, as mine will. And we have to understand, I'd rather have him understand that respect for authority comes with a very healthy dose of personal responsibility to discern right from wrong, not just an unquestioning fear of authority. So I think we rightly question when someone just tells us to do something based on the fact that I said so and you can't critique it or discuss it. We rightly react against authoritarianism when it's like that. But when Jesus commands something of us, he's not doing so as an authoritarian who has no intention of doing what he's asked you to do. He's already done what he's asked you to do. He's done it perfectly. He's also not demanding your obedience because of some lack in himself that you need to fulfill. No, he's complete and full in himself. He doesn't actually need you. He just desires to have you obey him. And it's important to repeat what he calls us to, he has done. When he commands, he has obeyed. What he commands, he has obeyed. When he calls us to sacrifice to accomplish what he commands, we know that he has done the same. He sacrificed everything, the glory of heaven and the throne of heaven to come into this world as a human and make disciples. Our problem with authority usually stems from sin, either our own sin or the sin of those we have to subject ourselves under at times. But Jesus here, in his authority, does command obedience and allegiance, but he does that with his own complete perfection and his own complete obedience. So why do we go and make disciples? Jesus has commanded it, and he has all authority. We should listen to him. How can we go, though? How can we go? This is one thing to say that Jesus has commanded us to do something and then that could quickly become a burden to us. That we have to do this in order to be fully accepted by God in some way or form. But that is not why Jesus commands us to go or how we are meant to be motivated to go. How can we go? Well, Jesus' presence empowers us. Jesus' presence empowers us. He tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you 
always to the end of the age. There's a couple of wonderful bookends to the Gospel of Matthew. And one of them centres, I think, around uh, the presence of God being with us. The very start of Matthew in chapter 1, where Joseph is hearing from the angel of the Lord in a dream uh, that Mary is with child. One of the names the angel uh, says that Jesus is to be known by is Emmanuel, God with us. And so that is the same promise here at the end of Matthew that we see Jesus gives his followers at the end of his ministry here on earth that he would be with us always. This promise of Emmanuel has not been cancelled, has not failed. It is still current. It gives us great hope, it gives us great comfort, it gives us great assurance, it gives us great power to know that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. This puts then this truth and reality of this great command from Jesus to go and make disciples and even sort of greater context. Not only is this command from Jesus framed by his absolute and perfect authority, but also by the promise of his presence. His presence that will not leave us. David Livingston, uh, a missionary to Africa uh, in the 1800s, and an explorer and pioneer in many ways in Africa also, claimed this exact promise for his ministry and claimed it as a, a hope and comfort to his life, even though he, he suffered many tragedies to his own health and to his um, physical health, but also his mental health, and many other things that he endured, including the death of his wife. At the burial, and the graveside of his own wife after he had performed a burial service for her, he read out this promise that we are to go into the world of um, make disciples of all nations, and he finished with the same phrase Jesus finished with, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And David Livingston said this at the death of his wife. Jesus Christ is too much of a gentleman to not keep his word. Let's get on with the task. The presence of Jesus in all places, for all times, for all things, but especially to continue the task ahead to make disciples of all nations. Without the presence of God, God's people are destined to fail, destined to flounder, destined to be defeated. Jesus gives this command. He does that not only with the motivation to do it, that he's commanded it, but also with the power to do it. His presence will be with us. How do we accomplish what Jesus has commanded? He must be with us. He must be. It would take extraordinary power to go to all nations, to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them all things that Jesus, that takes extraordinary power. That kind of power requires power to raise the dead back to life. It requires the power to bring light into darkness. 
It requires the power for truth to be heard in places it's never been heard. To make disciples takes extraordinary power. Takes Jesus' power. And Romans 8 verse 11 tells us that we have this. We have this same power that raised Jesus from the dead living in us. Helping us to combat our own sin and fight against it, but also to accomplish any command that Jesus has given. We can only make disciples if God is with us. We can ensure God is with us through a couple of different ways, I think. I think a big one is we acknowledge that it's his plan. That God's been on this for just a bit longer than we have. Before the foundation of the world, God had this plan that he would send his only son to redeem any who would believe in him. It's God's will that none would perish. The plan to make disciples of all nations is God's idea, not ours. So if we want his presence to be with us, we should probably acknowledge this is his plan, this is his idea, this is his will. Probably means we should not leave him out of our plans when we seek to do something as well. And Jesus' presence being with us is something that we need. We need it in those moments when we've reached the end of ourselves. Just when we think that we're alone in that workplace or that environment and we're surrounded by those who don't believe in Jesus. Just when we think we are alone, we have this promise that he is always with us. Just when we think there are too many souls to be reached and we can't possibly do it on our own, we are reminded that he is with us. Just when we think there's too many broken people to heal, too many broken relationships to be mended, too many lies to fight against, so much darkness in the world, we are reminded that he is with us. And he's with us every step of the way. And if he is with us, who can be against us? His presence and his power are fully combined. So lastly, who do we go to? If we've established that it's Jesus' disciples that are to go in his equipping and power and presence, that we go because he commands it and that we go, can go because he is with us, who do we go to? When we follow Jesus' example, he came for all nations. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. As um, I, I don't, I like listening and reading and, and thinking about uh, moments in church history or where there's been various missionary movements or great missionaries that have God has raised up to reach a certain group that haven't been reached before. And we might well sometimes evaluate what makes a successful mission. And we have a wonderful podcast uh, streaming at the moment that people should plug into The Renewal. Where Lawson's been doing that with a few different people, thinking through times in history where God has worked in a certain 
way to bring about renewal in personal lives or in certain moments in history. But what, how do we gauge a successful mission? How do we gauge whether this is a success or not? You know, do we gauge it on, on how many people were reached? David Livingston, for years and decades sometimes even, struggled and strived and worked sometimes for, for no converts. Many others tell similar stories of decades of work for little or no measurable outcome in numbers. I think Jesus might give us here two criteria for gauging success, inverted commas, when it comes to uh, carrying out this command. I think that the two measures are that it must go deep and it must go wide, just as that vision for the church was laid out for this year. Disciples are made, and that is a deep thing, and as many people as possible are reached, that is a wide thing. This is Jesus' command, that all would be reached and disciples would be made. That wide bit first, that all would be reached. Jesus commands us to go to all nations. And Luke's account of Jesus' similar instruction before the ascension back to heaven, Jesus wanted his disciples to witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the pattern through Acts follows that pattern where the church builds out, reaching all people. I take great encouragement as well, reading Revelation recently. There's a passage in Revelation 7 where people from every language, every tribe, every nation are gathered before God and before Jesus as the Lamb, praising God for his salvation. God's eternal plan of salvation has been accomplished in Jesus, but it also will be seen through. All nations will be reached. All nations will hear. And Jesus doesn't just invite us to participate. He commands us to participate. And this command is not meant to burden us, but to give us a great joy, a great hope, a great blessing, a great purpose, And most of all, we go to all nations because Jesus himself came for all people. Again, the bookend of Matthew, the very first message we looked at in the book of Matthew, the genealogy. Jesus' lineage is littered with humans who were far from perfect. There were kings, but there were some of those kings were murderers and adulterers. There were outsiders, there were prostitutes, there were people from outside God's people. But yet Jesus came from this line and for this line. He came for all. We go to all because he came for all. What about the deep part? How do we make disciples and defining as deep, how do we make disciples at last? How do we make disciples that are going to make disciples themselves? How do we create this where it multiplies? Jesus gives criteria as to what makes a disciple. We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And they continue to be taught in all things that Jesus has commanded. 
Deep disciples are not made by a show of hands. They're not made by filling out a contact card, although that's probably a very good first step. They're not made even by church attendance, although that's actually a very good thing to do. Disciples are made when people hear of the truth of Jesus and put their faith and trust in him. They're baptised into his church and they desire to live in all the things that he has taught for the rest of their lives. And they go on to make disciples. So it must go deep, it must last. And it must go wide, it must reach all. So how can we do this? We've already thought about that in some ways, in the sense of God's, Jesus' presence is with us through his spirit. There's nothing lacking in the power that we have access to. Or a couple of things that might, we might just be able to take away this morning. Because I don't expect us all to go out and then reach all nations this afternoon. So that would be wonderful. We also must trust that, as we've already said, that this is God's work and he is doing it and it's going to be accomplished. But what can we do and how can we do it? One, I think, thought that came up when I was thinking was just availability. Availability is a key factor if we're to seek to follow Jesus ourselves and also to share the good news of him with others. You notice the disciples, like we said at the start, they were not perfect. They were still doubting when they received this instruction, but they were there. They were there. What does your heart say about this command? When you hear it, when you think that Jesus has commanded his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, what do you say to yourself? Are you fearful? I am, certainly, at times. But Jesus did not give us a command for us to be in fear. This is a command that all things that come from God come with power and love and self-control, not for fear. Don't be fearful of failure. This mission depends on God's saving power, not yours and not mine. We set out to obey it, but our weaknesses and failures don't derail God's mission. A more challenging one for me is, do I even care? Do I even care? I'm often far more comfortable kicking back reading a book or watching something mindless to switch off than I am in having a meaningful conversation that might lead to someone else going deeper in faith or even myself going deeper in faith. Jesus gave his life so that we could have life. He also calls us to take up our cross and follow him. We have to care. Maybe you're exhausted. To balance out a previous point of not caring enough and not doing anything because you know God's got it, sometimes we go the other way and try and do too much because we think God really, really needs my help. 
And God requests your help. He asks for your help. He even commands your help, but he also empowers your help. But he also knows you're not him. You are not God. You need to sleep and rest. And you can do that knowing that he never has to, which is always reassuring. He who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. It's not all up to you. If you're working in your own power to see Jesus' command fulfilled, you will eventually need a break. Remember, even Jesus slept, and he slept in storms, entrusting himself to the will of his Father. And even Jesus went fishing and climbed mountains for a long time, so it's okay. Are you confused? You don't actually know what this means. You don't even know what it is to be a disciple, let alone what it is to make a disciple. The best way out of that is just ask some questions. Make sure that you yourself are a follower of Jesus, that you've trusted in him yourself, that he alone is your hope. So availability, asking the right heart questions and examining our hearts, and participation. And this is the part you've all been waiting for, where Luke, who's always asking for volunteers, now gives, stands up and gives you a massive guilt trip on how many people we need in the op shop, how many people we need for kids' club. And this is the part where I come out and say we're opening the op shop 24-7. We're doing the kids' club every day of the week as well, why not? A call to give more time, more money, more resources is often can be laden with guilt, and I know that well. And no one responds healthy in a healthy way when they respond based on guilt. I also want to challenge you this morning to say that no response at all is also unhealthy. So what can we do? What am I going to ask you to do? we, We could probably increase the numbers of our church and membership and congregation, even make a few disciples if we doubled a few things, if we opened the op shop 24-7. We might be able to meet a few more people, bring them into the kingdom. Maybe we could. Maybe if we doubled all the ministries and started up some extra services, maybe we'd reach two or three. Maybe we could. I think there's one guaranteed way. If we doubled one thing, If we doubled one thing, I think we could make disciples of all nations. We could pray. Prayer is participation and prayer leads to participation. If our prayer meeting doubled, I think we'd be able to make disciples. Again, that is not said to induce guilt, but that is said that's where the power is. Let's draw on the power from where we need it. And let's do the thing that we can do. So availability, participation, prayer. These are things we can do, but let us focus on what Jesus has done and what God can do. Jesus alone has all authority. Jesus alone has all authority over all nations. Jesus alone has all authority over all nations and is with us always. He has shown us what the task is because he has done it himself. 
He calls us to follow him. But we also know in following him, he never leaves anything undone, unfinished, or impossible. So let's entrust ourselves to him alone with the power that he has. Let's pray. Father, we, we know, and I know so often I am weak. I am unsure of, of what I can do, what I should do, and sometimes I don't care enough to even try to do anything. Lord, forgive my own apathy at times, my own laziness. Forgive me also for thinking I can accomplish so many things on my own without you. Lord, this morning may we all have a grasp and understanding of your authority, your power, what it is to own your name and follow you. And may we truly grasp that you are with us, always, empowering us to do what you have asked us to do. Thank you, Lord, for what you have provided in your Son. And may we always know that when we focus on him and on his work within us and on what you can do, Lord, find us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.